0: We know that, that God, if he is God, can do anything. I mean, that's not so shocking, right? If there is a God, then God ostensibly can do anything. Uh, but I do think it's difficult sometimes to work that reality into our lives, and the Easter story to me has always been an example of that. It's not that This guy, Jesus, came back to life on Easter that that shocks me because, again, if there is a God, we would expect things of him like that, you know? Once you buy into God, you kind of buy into those things. But it's the style of the Easter story that always gives me pause. It's the way way that God's miracles go down. It's how, how they're couched. It's... You know, it's all, the, it's all the surrounding details that always seem out of line, you know. Even if you buy God and you buy that he is all-powerful, the way that he does things in the stories that have been handed down to us are, are just kind of extraordinary. Maybe the way he does things in the stories in your lives shock you. You know, you know that God can do anything. You know that he has the right to do anything in your life, but the way he constructs your life. Oh, that can be shocking or, or maybe even offensive. Can I get an amen? Yeah. I mean, we know that God heals people. The fact that God would heal people of liver disease through, you know, an 11-year-old kid. Huh. Now that tells you something about God, doesn't it? So uh, having done the Easter miracle... On Easter Sunday, it's really the little ways that the Lord builds upon it, even in the earliest hours after that story, that I find to be so signature, so indicative of the nature of God, so very much His style. So we have a little story uh, in your bulletins today. It's from Luke chapter 24. It's a story of a couple of disciples who were traveling to a town called Emmaus, and this happened just you know, in the minutes after Jesus was resurrected on Easter Sunday, uh, 2,000 years ago. And uh, in some ways, it's such a small story and such a human story that it just shocks me. Here, here's how it goes. Luke 24, 13 through 35. You can follow along in your bulletin or read on the big board here to my left. Now, that same day, this being the very first Easter Sunday, that same day... Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they had all been in Jerusalem, they had all gone through uh, the crucifixion on Good Friday, the waiting on Saturday, Easter morning. These two disciples are headed out of town, they're hightailing it to Emmaus. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So some little mystical thing happened. They didn't know that it was Jesus. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I just always think that it's just such a, a Mediterranean thing to say. You know, they're downcast, but he still manages to get a little wild and offensive here. Um, uh, You know, haven't you heard? Are you the only guy who doesn't know what's going on? Oh, my goodness. What things, Jesus asks. Uh, About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our other rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. They crucified the most powerful prophet of the age. Uh. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive craziness. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. These guys are just a little freaked out right now, having heard all of the rumors and gone through the great disappointment of Friday. They're leaving town. And Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That would have been a cool Bible study to be part of right there. Jesus leading them through a few things. As they walked down the road to Emmaus, as they approached the village in which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. and The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. at that moment as if things hadn't been weird enough up till then they asked each other were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us we felt it was all true we felt the presence of God we just didn't believe it we just didn't trust it ah we should have known and they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. It's probably after, after sundown now, but they're hightailing it seven miles back to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them uh, as- assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon now. Uh, And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So this is turning into a very interesting evening in Jerusalem. Uh, These guys, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, one of whom we know was named uh, Cleopas, were evidently well-known followers of Jesus uh, in the day. That's why one of them is named by name uh, in the scripture, but they weren't. They weren't among the big 12 guys, right? They weren't the big 12 uh, apostles, 11 of whom survive at this point, uh, Judas uh, having, having passed on. Um, they were among sort of the larger band of Jesus' followers at the center, but not quite the exact center. Uh, and so they, they had gone through everything that the other 12 uh, had gone through just the scandal, the disappointment. The incredible grief of Jesus' murder and all that went with it. I mean, it really was just an extraordinary weekend for them. And we see them in this story of the travel, the trip to Emmaus, working to get their minds around what has gone down, really working to get their minds around the story of of Jesus' death. And now this strange rumor that is circulating that he's actually maybe not dead. And, you know, they probably weren't there at the cross because it was only the brave women and one child that stuck with Jesus at the cross. You know, so it's all one step removed from their direct experience. They don't know what to believe. In other words, I mean, it's just, this is not what they expected. It was extraordinarily disappointing. Now you've got these disturbing, disturbing rumors. They don't know what to believe, and you see them struggling to get their heads around it. I, I kind of have the same experience every time Easter rolls around. Again, not because of, you know, a great miracle, because I assume God can do that. But because of the way that it all went down, I, to this day, I still find fodder for great uh, meditation. It's always worth asking when Easter rolls around. It's just, just a fairy tale made up by people who needed to cover their losses. You know, they were following a guy they thought that was, was the Messiah. He got killed, so they fabricated the rest of it to make themselves and their followers feel better to, to continue the counterfeit and to build a religion. Is that what was going on? Is it just a constructed fairy tale Even the people who were there, like these two disciples, were pretty much asking the same sort of thing, even even there at the epicenter. And the fact that we have an account of their wrestling to get their brains around it is one of the reasons uh, that the whole thing seems so legitimate to me. You know, there are no heroes in this story except Jesus himself. You know, you would expect the plotters, if they were plotters, to glorify themselves a little bit. Yes, we knew it all along, and look how cool we are. You can trust us, follow us. Uh, we are trustworthy prophets. That's what all the cults do, right? Uh, the, lead, the cult is started by a leader who claims that he or she has a revelation from God, and, and he or she is very special, and you should follow them. But the leaders of the early church were like, yeah, we were totally screwed up and missed it, and, and basically we just embarrassed ourselves the whole time along but follow us. You know, it, nobody would have done it like that if they were actually trying to counterfeit something. Uh, if they're lying, the whole, the whole early church lied very poorly. I mean, who were the chief witnesses of that portion of history? Well, it, it, it was the women. And in that age, in that culture, women weren't even allowed to testify in court. You know, they were considered a little subclass, uh, if you know what I mean, but women are the chief uh, witnesses. They were the ones that brave enough, manly enough to stick at the cross, right? Nobody would have made that up because it would have embarrassed them to make it up. So, you know, it, it, it must be true, and the apostles are constantly showing themselves. Their recording is showing themselves Uh, in embarrassing cowardly dispositions. In the same way the embarrassing bits of the gospel testify to the gospel's legitimacy, I think the embarrassing bits of the resurrection story legitimate it. At the very least, we conclude that the people who give us these records are trying very hard to tell the truth. They're trying very hard to tell you what they think happened. But I think the bigger evidence of the resurrection story uh, by far Uh, is the evidence that comes from the ancient scriptures, the Old Testament prophecies that even at the time of Jesus' resurrection were many centuries old. And this actually is what the Emmaus story suggests, right? Jesus comes along, and instead of saying, hey, I'm Jesus, ta-da, I am alive, he says, look, let me step you through prophecies that have been around for centuries, because these things couldn't, have be f- couldn't be faked. If they've come true, they have come through across the millennium. That's significant evidence. I don't know exactly what Jesus shared with them. I would have loved to have been in that Bible story. But here are some scr- scriptures that Jesus might have shared with them as they were walking along and sitting down to dinner. Uh, Isaiah 53 is often considered the, the chief Messianic prophecy from a prophet Isaiah who wrote, um, you know, five or six centuries before Jesus lived. In Isaiah 53, it says, of the Messiah. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So this is an old and ancient prophet telling the Jews, your Messiah will come and you will spit on him. You will not accept him. He will be rejected by you. Psalm 41, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. In other words, the fact that Jesus would would be betrayed by a personal friend was prophesied in the Psalms like a thousand years before Jesus lived, which is extraordinary that it should come true. Psalm 22, a psalm that we have talked about the last couple of weeks, describing the death of this Messiah figure. Dogs surround me, Uh, a pack of villains encircle me, they pierce my hands and my feet. I would die by having pierced hands and feet, the prophecy said, which was extraordinary because when this psalm was written a thousand years before Jesus, crucifixion did not exist. But it describes the death of a hero by piercing of hands and feet. You can't make that up. Just extraordinarily accurate centuries before Jesus lived. Isaiah 53 says he was numbered with the criminals. The way that he would be killed, he would, he would be killed amidst criminals. And, of course, that's how it worked on the hilltop of Golgotha, a criminal to his left and right, we are told. Uh, that's how the Romans did it. They crucified criminals in bunches. And finally, Psalm 16 For you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see decay. You will show me the path of life. So before the body could decay, evidently this murdered Messiah figure would come back to life. It was all there. It was all there in the Scriptures, the whole story. But nobody read it correctly because how could you put that together? It sounds so weird. That your Messiah, your hero, you would reject and then kill him and then he would come back to life. That's not ordinary. But having experienced it with Jesus, you could go back and read these scriptures and be like, Oh my goodness, it's been there all along. It's like a really good mystery novel. In the last pages, when you find out who did it and how it was done, you realize that the clues were there all along and you should have known. The surprise is the joy. And it's also where the faith comes from. I think, uh, for me personally, though, the big takeaway of the Emmaus story is that these guys didn't stick around till Sunday. You know, they didn't, they didn't quite make it till Sunday. Dawn, Sunday came around, they left town. In other words, they waited for the Sabbath to be over uh, so that their traveling would not be suspicious. And then they hightailed it. They would followed Jesus around for we don't know how long, uh, went through the disappointment of his death, and now they're just, okay, now we're leaving, we're getting on with uh, the rest of our lives. Um, a lot of us get stuck on Saturday in the gospel story, I think, and these were a couple guys that get stuck on Saturday. They didn't quite make it to Sunday. Maybe in life uh, sometimes you feel like you can get past Friday, that you have some disappointment, some death, some loss in your life, and you can get far enough to sort of reconcile yourself to the, to the grief. It's like, all right, it happened, I'm disappointed, I'm devastated, I'm grieved, but you know what? I'm going to get on with the rest of my life now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that Jerusalem and... and I'm just going to find some place to go. I'm going to get on with the rest of my life now. And that in itself sounds pretty healthy, right? That's what we say. Something terrible happened, all right, it's over. Get on with the rest of your life. Uh, you know, that's, that's psychologically healthy. It is a triumph of a sort, just getting on with the rest of your life. But sometimes in doing that, I think we, we leave town too early. We give up a bit too early We can handle the death, we can get over the death, but we can't quite trust in new life. And that's where these two disciples were. They couldn't quite manage the hope properly. Yeah. The story is about a couple guys who were doing decently well, all things considered. I mean, the, the 11 were still holed up in Jerusalem, afraid to move. These guys had at least made... The decision to get on with the rest of their life. They had conquered Friday, uh, but they had not accepted Sunday. And by their conversation, though, we can tell that they were having trouble with the rest of it. They, they had left it behind, but had they really left it behind, it was gnawing at them. Did not our hearts burn within us? You know, God had a hold of them, and they just wouldn't quite honor it with faith. Not quite. Why? And they made it to dawn, but not to daybreak, you know? And sometimes we are there in, in our life. Why couldn't they handle it? Well, I mean, it's easy to understand. They'd gone through a, a great disappointment. They had counted on this Messiah, and they had been let down. And that leaves a mark when we have experiences like that in life. They were hearing stories, rumors that maybe he's alive, but that didn't fit into any paradigm they knew. That had never been modeled for them before, so could they even uh, trust it? There was confusion about, well, even if it's true, what do we do? I mean, how do you go forward with something like this? They weren't programmed for this. Uh, they weren't programmed to accept and, and respond uh, to these rumors. That would have required them to really, to really change. That would require them to improvise. I sympathize with them. I do. And so I love it the way that Jesus shows up to them in the story. Jesus shows up to reveal himself in glory. No. Jesus shows up to help. Which is just signature Jesus. I mean, it's one of those things that just really shocks me about the character of God. You would expect him to show up in radiant light, you know, with a sword of... No. He just, he just shows up to help them where they're at. It's subtle. It's subtle. And those of us who have been following Jesus uh, for a long time know this about him. He works in subtle ways, in personal ways. And somehow that makes the story more surprising and in the end grander. That he should behave this way. Jesus shows up uh, to, to help. First helping them to reprogram a bit calls them to reconsider the story in light of centuries of history and, and, and recordings and evidence. Uh, that was really cool. And then he sort of got them to a place at which they could see him for who he is. He reviews the ancient stories and kind of gets them to think, hey, maybe it did have to happen this way. Maybe. I mean, life, is, life has been terrible. I mean, life this weekend has really sucked but maybe God does have it planned out. He just sort of got them to that place, right? And and then, then they beheld Jesus doing something that was very familiar to them. Jesus broke the bread. He gave thanks and broke the bread in front of them. He started serving out food. They had followed Jesus for, we don't know how long, maybe up to three years at this point. They had shared bunches of meals with him. Jesus was always the guy who was thankful for the meal and the fellowship. Jesus broke the bread. Thank you, God. Hey guys, let's share this out. And then they're like, now I see him. I see him because I realize he's been with me all along. How many of you have experiences like that? When you see Jesus, you realize that he's been with you for a long time. You just didn't recognize it at first. I would be so bold as to say this. If you encounter Jesus for the first time today, you will immediately realize that he's been hanging around you for a long time. He never just walks into a life and discloses himself in that first moment. He's been with you since the beginning. That's always the way it works, and they get it. They get it when it happens. Um, the Emmaus story is such a, a lovely human story. I think it says so much about the Lord—not just that He's all powerful, but it says something about His character, His approach, His attitude. You know, uh, it's not that He's He's just a, a kick butt, all powerful God that can reanimate dead flesh. Okay, that's amazing, but it's the sort of amazing that we would expect from a God, right? Uh, God can do that. But he's also a small, attentive, helpful God, an author of stories both epic and personal. And that makes Easter what it is. He conquers death as the ancient prophecies told with confirming details, but he did it subtly and humbly and personally and helpfully. I mean, it just... That just says so much that nobody would have ever expected. In the midst of his miraculous power, he's just helpful. And I think he does it that way so that we wouldn't miss his purpose in the midst of his miracle. He's not just doing a miracle. He's, he's bringing us along. He really is a personal God. He really is. No other God like that. Signature Jesus. Or maybe you could say that Jesus is the the signature of God. Uh, There are a lot of critics of comparative religion. They sometimes say things like, oh, many religious and traditional mythical stories from around the world tell of immortal heroes coming back from death. So the Jesus story is, is not that unusual. It's just one among many. Uh, But no, there's nothing like the Jesus story. Heroes coming back from death? No, not like this, they don't. A person could conceive of a God conquering death. But no one could have conceived of a story like Jesus' story. Unfolding with prophecies across centuries. Featuring the public humiliation and death of God made man. And then the triumph over that death but for all the sweeping and encompassing drama of it, still keeping it small and personal and humble. No, there's nothing like this story. This is one of a kind, one of a kind, any way you care to consider it. Nothing like this story in all the world. And frankly, sometimes we need the help of the Lord himself to get our brains around it, just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus did. It's so different than we expect that even when we're trying, we only get as far as Saturday. We don't quite make it all the way till Sunday. We accept that Jesus was a, a great spiritual leader who died unfairly, but the rest of it, I uh, can't quite get there. We need a little help with that. Or even as followers of Jesus, we can get hung up on the impossibilities of the story. We know that God can conquer anything, but somehow when it's personal, when we go through the deaths and disappointments of our own life, it just gets too confusing. It just, it just gets all bollocks up. Faith can become theoretical instead of life changing. So here are some tips for making it to Sunday, and we'll just end with these. Uh, number one, reevaluate the story from time to time, the story of God and the story of God with you. Our boys in this story were reinstructed in the scriptures and they came to re understand the story that they were part of. Hey, maybe it did have to happen this way. If something has gone wrong, terribly wrong in your life, I submit to you that one way to open the window to God would be to say, Hey, Maybe it did have to happen this way. I know it's been terrible, but maybe this is the path to greater purpose and love for me. Reevaluate. It might get you a little farther down the road, or it might get you back to where you need to be. Number two, please reevaluate your status. And what I mean by that is reevaluate your status with God. You might think that. God has left you behind, that you've left God behind, and that God is dead, or at least that God is dead for you, and then you realize in the next moment that he's sitting there eating dinner with you, that he's been with you all along. And if you just open yourself up to the possibility that God is still with you, trying to fellowship with you, maybe you'll realize that he is. Easter is a great time to reevaluate your status with God. You know, it's hard to confirm that God is alive even in the very beginning Easter story, when you think that Jesus could have made it pretty obvious, he could have stood in this temple and just like, hey, yo, here I am. Uh, He was subtle. It's just his way. And in this day and age, it's hard to prove that God is alive. It's hard. But you just try proving that he's dead. That's much harder. That's much harder. So, you know, if you're a believer, let me ask you, um, do you have... Do you have graves in your life? Do you, have, do you have things that are supposed to be dead, but that you just have a feeling aren't? Do you know what I mean? Uh, go to the graves in your life and, and examine them. Are there not curious signs of life and activity, even in the places that you expect death? Really, could it, could it not be true that God is doing something there? Is there not actually something to work with in your life? Just be willing to reevaluate. Is, is there not really a seed of faith in you after all? A burning in your heart that tells you, I knew it. I, I kind of sensed the presence of God. I just couldn't prove it. I just couldn't prove it. Yeah. There's not room for some hope and meaning uh, in your life after all. Sometimes after a loss, we disallow ourselves to hope like the disciples did. They, res- they refused to believe the reports. And, and even after experiencing the Lord, we read in all of the stories around the resurrection, they had trouble believing it still. Could it be that God is not dead? I imagine them saying to themselves, could it be that this great disappointment, this loss that we have experienced was actually part of a plan, a plan that stretched back to a time uh, before we were born? Could it be that that Jesus' life and death and resurrection, a story that was set up prophetically through the centuries, the greatest and most historically influential story ever told, is actually true? It's true in the world, and it's true for you. Could the rumors be true? That's what gets me every Easter. Every Easter. God uh, helps us in this walk of faith because he knows that we need it. Uh, But the way he helps us is usually signature. Not in the obvious ways. It's in the God-style ways. It's in... Reevaluation of our personal stories, small steps of faith. And it's in fellowship, I think, fellowship with Jesus and fellowship uh, with the saints. Um, the design of the people of God has always been that we are meant to travel this journey of faith together. And uh, Jesus went out to get these disciples, Cle- Cleopas and his buddy, And to take them back into Jerusalem to be with the other disciples. Um, He would send them out eventually, but they needed to be together uh, for a while. Every Easter, we come together because we need it, I think. It's a great occasion to celebrate the miracle and to reevaluate our personal standing on it. We're going to end today's service uh, by taking communion, by breaking bread and sharing it with one another. We're going to do it. Uh, ritualistically, um, as many churches will do today, serving the bread and the wine uh, to partake together as a sacrament. And then we're going to dismiss to a rainbow potluck, or what they called in Scripture, a love feast. We're going to go break bread and fellowship together because that's how Jesus has been hanging out with his people from the very beginning. Time like a plan? But here's the deal. As we take communion together today, depending on where you're at with the Lord, I would just like to humbly encourage you to make it personal. Maybe today you need a fresh revelation of Jesus. Or maybe today you need your first revelation of Jesus. I promise you he's been with you all along. But maybe you really need to see your face. Maybe as we've just hung out here together, you've begun to see an outline of the face of Jesus for the first time. And if that's true, then I invite you to partake of communion with us as a step to behold the rest of him. To say, Lord, I'm willing to journey with you and with your people. And if that's where you are today, then by all means come and and take the communion with us. You just break off a piece of bread, dunk it in the juice, and and eat it at your leisure. It's a symbol of of sharing fellowship with Jesus and his people. And then follow through on the rest of Sunday. Now make a commitment to travel with us. Join one of the Ohana groups that TJ talked about. Talk to me or one of the leaders that you've seen up here up front uh, this morning. Make Easter count. It's a -a one-of-a-kind thing. On the night before he died, Jesus was sharing one last meal with his disciples, and he took the the loaf of bread that they were sharing, and he broke it, and he said, Guys, this this is like my body broken for you. Take it and eat. And in the same way, he took the common cup of wine that they were sharing, and he held it in front of them and said, This is is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for you. He was, of course, talking of the crucifixion to come. He said, take it and drink. And then he added, as often as you do this, as often as you get together to share a meal, do it in remembrance of me. Hoist one for Jesus. Talk about the stories that you've heard the scriptures that you've known, remember and reevaluate. And that's the exercise today. Father, we commit to you this time and this fellowship, and we only pray, Lord, to see your face amidst the faces in the crowd. In Christ's name we pray, amen.